Give our attention now to the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Genesis chapter 50, beginning in verse 15. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, do not fear. Or am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus Joseph comforted them, and he spoke kindly to them. The grass withers. And the flower fades, but the word of our God remains forever. Let's pray. God, we come to you this morning and we are thankful for your word. Thankful that you've preserved it for us so we can have it today. We've heard it read and we understand the words, but we come to you now and ask that you would open our eyes that we may behold wondrous things. Give us spiritual understanding, oh God. Teach us and train us, correct us, even rebuke us for righteousness' sake. Holy Spirit, take the preached word and align our hearts with the will of God that we might please him in all that we say and do. Father, would you help me, your servant, and protect me from error? May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing and acceptable unto you. Oh God, you are our rock and our redeemer. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. On April 1st of this year, residents of Dallas, Texas were treated to a spectacular light show. People watched in wonder as 300 drones maneuvered around the night sky and finally came to hover in the finale position. People on the ground seeing that the drones had formed a giant QR code. Everybody knows what a QR code is. It's a, a square looking little barcode that you scan with your phone. And so people started taking their phones out and scanning this QR code, wondering to where it would take them. You know, a free hamburger, right, from, from In-N-Out or something like that. They were excited. Slowly, the reality of the situation creeped across the masses as they discovered that the link sent them to a YouTube where they got to hear these infamous lyrics, never gonna give you up. Never going to let you down. Never going to run around and desert you. It was April Fool's Day, and they had just been Rickrolled, tricked into playing Rick Astley's famous 1987 song, Never Going to Give You Up. You can thank me on your way out today for having that song stuck in your head now. 
You're welcome. Signs play an integral role and purpose in this life. Whether it be a a QR code, a street sign, a business sign, whatever it may be, signs point us to a destination. Signs help us to know where we are on a journey. Signs give us important information. And many times, signs invite us places, invite us even to come inside when the business says open and we can come in and experience what is there for us. Signs are so important to our everyday life that most of the time we probably don't even give them much thought until we really need them. The Bible, particularly the Old Testament, is full of signs. Signs pointing us forward to the great and glorious redemptive work of Jesus Christ on behalf of his people And these signs fit together to remind us that the Bible, though it contains many stories, the Bible is indeed one story, capital O. It is one story. It's the one story of God's great story of redemption, his story of grace, God's story of mercy, God's story of peace. God's story of abundant and true blessing. Our time over the last seven and now eight weeks in Genesis 37 through 50 has given us a glimpse into the story of redemption. These chapters have shown us how God's sovereign grace in the life of Joseph has been building upon prior events and also setting the stage for future events in the life of the nation of Israel. And as we come today to the final chapters, these last two chapters in this part of the story, we're going to find three very important signs, signs that reveal for us not only more of God's great plan of redemption, but that reveal the great Savior who stands behind that plan and the one who ultimately accomplishes God's plan. The story is about Jesus. So if you're taking notes, we'll spend our time together in chapters 49 and 50, and we'll have three signs as our outline. The first sign we'll look at is the blessing. In particular, the blessing given to Judah in chapter 49, verses 8 through 12. Would you look there with me? Genesis 49, verses 8 through 12. Jacob is blessing each of his sons. And as he comes to Judah, he says this. 49, beginning in verse eight. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and as a lioness. Who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. 
So Jacob here is not only blessing his sons with his words here in chapter 49 and encourage you to read all of those blessings. And most of them are plays on the names of the sons. For instance, Judah's name means to praise. And so we see here him saying that your brothers will praise you. Uh, Jacob is doing his patriarchal duty. I would say he's doing his fatherly duty and he's speaking blessing over his children. But he's not only speaking blessing, he's speaking prophecy. He's speaking prophecy about their futures and their places within the nation of Israel. And you can go and study the different sons and what happens, and much of it can be brought back to here. He's blessing them, but he's prophesying over them. There's no doubt that these are mixed blessings. Some sound better than others. They're mixed, but nevertheless, they're words inspired by God's Spirit. They're inspired words. And while each blessing is important, the blessing given to Judah is perhaps the greatest. But why Judah? Why Judah? Judah was not Jacob's favored son. You might remember the account of Judah's grievous relationship with his daughter-in-law, Tamar, back in chapter 38. Kind of a black eye on his life. You might remember that Judah is actually the one responsible for Joseph being sold into slavery. It was his idea, after all. You might even remember that Judah is the son of Leah. Judah is the son of Leah, the wife of Jacob, who was the least favored. So what right does Judah have to a blessing like this? We've gotten hints of it, haven't we? Throughout this story, we've seen Judah come alive in a way. Throughout this story, we've seen him do kind of remarkable things. We see him shake off the shackles of his past and he steps up. Remember when he offered himself as a substitute for Benjamin? As his brothers were being tested in Egypt, he says, no, I'll stand in the gap for Benjamin. But what about him had changed? It's a noble thing that he did. What had changed? What possibly led Judah to act in such a noble way? What, what, did, what did he do? What did Judah do to bring upon himself such preeminence among his brothers? Certainly he had to do something. Why Judah? Well, it's... One word answer, grace, grace, nothing but grace. Judah didn't earn this. What he did was noble. What he did before that was sinful, but it's not the work of his hands. It's grace. This is God's grace. He had been called to this. Judah had been called out of his own sin and misery, and now he's given a preeminent place among his brothers. And you can see this preeminence on full display in the praise that will one day come to him. Verse eight tells us that Judah's brothers will praise him, that they will come and bow down before him. So not only will they bow down before Joseph, but now we see all of them will come and bow down before him. Inspired by God, it's clear that Jacob knows that Judah is the son of promise. Judah is the first among his brothers now, he's the one to whom 
they will come and give homage. And that truth is carried forward as, as Jacob goes on and he presents here two images to highlight the power that Judah's receiving in Judah's line at this point. The lion and the scepter. He speaks of the lion and the scepter. The lion is a fierce and conquering animal, right? The king of the jungle. The lion is fierce and a conqueror. And the scepter is what? A scepter is a symbol of power held in the hand of the king as the one who rules over all things. So we see that these signs are pointing to a reality that Jacob couldn't have fully understood at this point or anyone else in that room. But because we have the Bible before us, we know that he's pointing to the reality of a future coming line of kings from the line of Judah. A line that will extend from King David and all throughout Old Testament history. It's gonna go until we come to who? The one true king, Jesus Christ. The one who you remember in our call to worship this morning? How is he described in Revelation 5.5? The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. You see the promise given way back to Abraham of an offspring in whom all the world would be blessed is carried not through the line of Joseph, not through Reuben or Simeon or Levi or any of the other brothers or half-brothers, but it comes through Judah. The promised Messiah will come through the line of Judah. Jacob is looking at and he's blessing his sons as he's about to die. His eyes are dim with old age, but by God's inspiration, he can see as clearly as ever at this point. And the sign he gives is just as clear. Though for centuries, God's people are gonna be so far away from that sign that it's not gonna be in sharp focus. But today, you and I are standing on the other side of the cross, standing on a different point, a, for them a future point in the timeline of redemptive history. And when we look back over the landscape, that sign might as well be a neon. It might as well be as bright as can possibly be. We come to the scriptures and we, we have the fullness of his revelation right here. We have all that we need for life and faith, the apostle Peter reminds us. And we can see how not only this sign, but how each and every sign points us to God's faithfulness, how God has worked in each and every detail to bring about ultimate fulfillment of his promises. How God by his grace, takes the story of Joseph and shows us that the story of Joseph's not really about Joseph. That's about God. God loves his people so much that he'll send Joseph to Egypt in suffering and he will rise to prominence so that he can provide for his family so that the line of Judah would be sustained so that one day, King Jesus would be born of that line in that lineage. The second sign I want us to see in our text this morning comes again in chapter 49, but now verse 28 through 50, 14. From 49, 28 through 50, 14. It's the record of the return, the return of Jacob to Canaan. So if you're taking notes, I'm gonna call this second sign the return. 
Look with me at 49, and I'll read verses 28 through 33. All these are the 12 tribes of Israel. This is what their father said to them as he blessed them, blessing each with the blessing suitable to him. Then he commanded them and said to them, I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field at Machpelah, to the east of Mam, in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. There they buried Abraham and Sarah, his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah, his wife. And there I buried Leah. The field and the cave that is in it were bought from the Hittites. When Jacob finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into the bed and he breathed his last. And he was gathered to his people. As Jacob comes to the end of his blessings, he also comes to the end of his days. He dies. But before he dies, he makes it very clear that he does not wish to remain in Egypt. He had made a covenant with Joseph. We talked about that last week to bring him up out of there. Now he tells all the sons. He wants to be buried with his fathers in Canaan. He wants to go to Canaan. In chapter 50, beginning in verse one, we go on to see the depth of mourning that takes place. Not only does Joseph order the Egyptians to put him through an embalming ritual of 40 days, that's part of what happens here. But look at the end of verse three. Look how the Egyptians, even the Egyptians respond to Jacob's death. And the Egyptians wept for him 70 days. 70 days they mourned for Jacob. 70 days. In an event filled with all kinds of irony, Joseph goes on. You, you see it there starting in verse four and following. Joseph goes to Pharaoh and he asks for permission to take Jacob home to Canaan to bury him there. Sound familiar? 400 plus years later, another one's gonna walk into Pharaoh and ask to let the people go back to Canaan. But his response is not gonna be the response of this Pharaoh. This Pharaoh says, go, take him back, take him back. Unlike what Moses experiences, Joseph receives the immediate yes. We read in verses seven through 14 that Joseph goes with all of his brothers He's got a full caravan. It's a funeral procession like you've probably not seen in this era at this time, Egyptians and Hebrews alike. And they embark all the way to take Jacob out of Egypt. Six times in these verses, we're told out of or up from. Takes him up out of Egypt and to his final resting place. Once there, he's buried. And then they return home. Even the people who see it happening along the way, take note. These people are lamenting. They're mourning. They love Jacob. So what is the sign here then? What is the sign that we see? Well, to see it, we actually have to go back to Genesis 15. Just a few pages back, if you'll turn there with me. 
Genesis 15, verses 13 through 16. God is making his covenant with Abram, Abraham. Listen to what the Lord says, beginning in chapter 15, verse 13. The Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and they will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. You see, everything that's been happening up to this point and everything that will happen was already foretold to Abraham. It was already foretold to Abraham, and I'm sure that was passed on to the people. We know from the pages of Scripture that what happens to the people of Israel while in Egypt surely comes to pass just as God says so here in Genesis 15. After Easter, we're going to start a series in the book of Exodus And we'll see that for ourselves in God's word. But pay attention though to what God is doing here in sending Jacob back to Canaan. He's not only fulfilling Jacob's dying wish to be buried with his fathers in the land of promise, but he's also sending and putting Jacob back there in Canaan as a deposit Jacob is going up out of Egypt as a guarantee of what will one day be true of his own son's descendants. They too will one day be brought up out of the land of Egypt 400 years later. And they're gonna be delivered back to the promised land of Canaan. Just as sure as it happened for Jacob, it's gonna happen for them. Just as God put him there, he's gonna put you there too. Again, living on this side of the cross, we cannot help but see how this sign is a huge billboard on the road to redemptive history. For the promised son of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Judah, the promised seed would one day go before his people as well as a sure guarantee of the true land of promise that awaits them when they're finally delivered from this world of sin and death. He would also die and be placed in the grave but that grave would not be his final resting place. For Jesus would rise victorious over death and he would blaze a trail to heaven where all those who believe in him by faith will one day go as well. And so he goes before his people as a sure guarantee that they have a home. And don't just listen to me, listen to him. Turn to John 14. Jesus is giving his farewell discourse to his disciples, telling them that he was going to leave. They, of course, have questions, as we all would. So he says, beginning in chapter 14, verse 1, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again 
and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Our favorite doubter, Thomas says, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the father except through me. Brothers and sisters, what is true of Jesus is true of us as well. Just as God had long before promised to bring his people up out of the land of Egypt and even given them this deposit as a guarantee. So he also sent his son Jesus into this world to deliver us from our bondage to sin and death. Having him go before us as the fulfillment of a greater deliverance and then giving us as well a guarantee, a deposit, putting his spirit upon our very hearts, a sure guarantee of what Jesus says here is true. He will certainly bring us with him to the Father one day. He will certainly bring us home as well. Listen, if you belong to Jesus, you can be absolutely sure of this. If you belong to Jesus, because he was raised from the dead and because he went before us to heaven to prepare a place for us, you too you too will be raised to glory with him. You'll spend eternity with him there in heaven. That's what the sign here in our text is pointing to. It points to a sure and steadfast guarantee of heaven, a guarantee that we too will be delivered ultimately and finally to Canaan. So our first two signs from These chapters were the blessing and the return. And now I want us to come to our third and final sign, which I'll call the plan. The sign comes from the verses which I read at the beginning, chapter 50, verses 15 through 21. In early February 2016, I was in the Gambia for a two-week mission trip. The purpose of this trip was a little different than I'm used to. I taught for a week. And then I was to spend the second week taking a trip out to the farthest eastern regions of the country so I could visit with and encourage a small number of the only Kanyaji-speaking Christians in all of West Africa. To say the least, the trip was very difficult. It was really hot, as it tends to be. The roads at times weren't really roads at all. I didn't know what we were driving on but they told me they were roads. The car got stuck a couple of times, so we all had to get out and get the car out. The engine overheated once, and so we poured water on it for an hour or so until we could drive it again. We were harassed by police people and soldiers alike trying to get bribes from us. And when we finally reached what I thought was our final destination, like I thought we were there, and everyone was like, yeah, we're here, we're here, we're here. I'm seeing nothing but a mango tree where we parked our car underneath. And then I was told that we still had to hike several miles into the bush to reach the village to where we were going. It wasn't passable by car. So I'm hot, hungry, cranky, and I didn't have a Snickers, okay? It would have melted anyway. So I turned to my friend and my guide, Abu, and I said, you're trying to kill me, aren't you? You're trying to kill me. He laughed. He muttered some words in his Fulani dialect to one of our traveling companions, and they all laughed. 
And then they turned to me and he said, this is what I told them. You think I'm killing you, but I'm actually giving you life. You think I'm killing you, but I'm actually giving you life. I wasn't convinced at first, but he was right. The time I spent in Tonkonkunda with those Kenyaji-speaking Christians reinvigorated my soul. It was like I hadn't traveled all day and was as grumpy as I was. To hear them sing to the Lord Jesus with all their hearts and to be able to preach the gospel to them and remind them of the hopes of the glory of Jesus was wonderful and life-giving. I was refreshed and I made it home safely. A similar yet more profound experience is had by Joseph and his brothers as the book of Genesis comes to a close here. Notice Jacob is dead and gone. Joseph's brothers are now fearful. They're fearful. It's like their hedge of protection, right, is gone. They're afraid that Joseph's gonna hate them and pay them back for all the evil they had done. So they send word to Joseph saying, in effect, you're gonna kill us, aren't you? You're gonna kill us. So they apologize. They seek the forgiveness of their brother and they wonder if he's gonna truly forgive them. How can he not love Joseph's response? In verse 17, how can you not just love it? Notice again, he's full of emotion. I relate to Joseph, he's a crier. He weeps. Let's look again though at verses 19 through 21. Joseph says, do not fear for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. There's a sign for all of us here. And this sign says this loud and clear. God is in control. God knows what he's doing. God knows exactly what he's doing. That's what Joseph wants his brothers to know more than anything. He wants them to know, evidenced by his question, that none of us can stand in the place of God. None of us can met out God's judgments on his behalf. None of us can know God's mind or the secret plans of his eternal will. Even the evil things that people do are not independent from his sovereignty and his providence. Joseph could not think about the long and arduous journey of his own life without acknowledging that it was exactly what God intended it to be. Even if it took the sins of his brothers against him to bring it about. And notice that Joseph's not like we are so many times. He's not passive aggressive, is he? He's not bitter. He's not angry. Instead, he gives them life. Not by sparing them but by speaking life-giving words to them. Look what it says at verse 21. He comforted them and he spoke kindly to them. The apostle Peter does the same thing on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter two. You can turn with me there if you'd like.
giving a sermon on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2, beginning in verse 22, Apostle Peter says this, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. You see what man intended for evil to crucify the Lord Jesus Christ happened exactly as God had planned it to do. Why? So that we could have eternal life. So that we could be rescued. We could have eternal comfort. So that 3,000 souls on the day of Pentecost and countless more since that day would repent of their sins and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. God's plan is indeed perfect. Even if we have to declare bankruptcy in our understanding of it, which many times we do, don't we? God, I can't understand what you're doing or why you're doing it, but I know that your ways are good. The events of Joseph's life, as troubling as they may have been, were not without a plan. Each day happened just as God wanted it to happen. And it all happened as a sign. It happened as a sign for all of us who read it, a sign that points to a God who loves his people so much that he cares not just about the end of our stories, but it's a sign that points to a God who loves us, his people, so much that he cares about each and every moment along the way. God cares about the means just as much as he does the end. God is involved in every bit of it. He will not leave you nor forsake you. He is always working for you. How can you not read the story of Joseph and not be reminded that God intended it for good? Three signs the blessing, the return, and the plan. Each important to Jacob's family history, but important for our history as well. For each one, each one of these signs fits together along with so many others in the Old Testament. We even sang about a few of them in a song earlier. These things fit together, working in harmony to point us to the great and glorious redemptive work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. So as we come here to the end of the story of God's sovereign grace in the life of Joseph, I really hope you know that the story of God's sovereign grace in your life is not over, that it continues, it keeps going. No matter where you are on your journey, and I look around the room and there's some tough journeys here. No matter where you are on that journey, do you know that God is good? Do you know that God has given to you his word? Christians, do you know that? That God has given to you his word? And as we go to the word and as we hunger and thirst for his word, 
he shows us in his word, how he has provided for us above and beyond all that we could imagine, that he is indeed weaving us into the fabric of the one great story, the story of the redemption that we have in Jesus Christ, that we're part of his body and his family, that God takes us out of our sin and death and he gives us life. He gives us life. And he continues to write his story of grace on our lives. So I wanna encourage you to never stop looking for the signs. I'm not talking about drones in the sky. I'm not talking about these things outside the Bible. Although God is gracious to give us those too sometimes, isn't he? Conversations, things that happen. Look to the word. Look to the word. The firm foundation we have. When we do that, when you do that, you'll be keeping your eyes fixed on Jesus the author and perfecter of your faith, the one who went before us, the one who's coming again for us, the one who's gonna lead us home to the promised land of heaven, the one who knows your story. Keep your eyes fixed on him. Amen and amen.